Joseph Addison was a poet and a statesman and a writer in England of some centuries ago. And he said so many wonderful things, among them this little statement I liked. Sunday clears away the rust of the whole week. I hope you find that's true, that Sunday has a way of cleaning up your perspectives a little bit, sharpens you spiritually. It has a way of uh, cleansing us and clearing us up to think more about God's thoughts and directions in our lives than, than as we go through a work week, a daily grind, and the responsibilities of life, we can lose some focus and we just need to get spiritually recharged. Sunday can do some good things along that order. Imagine with me for a moment that you and I lived a long, long time ago. Instead of being uh, children of the 20th century or the 21st century, imagine we were first century people. I know that's a stretch because that's a long time ago. But imagine that we were Christ followers of that generation, that we were among those who were the first followers of Jesus. And imagine we went through those last days of the earthly life of Jesus before he went to the cross. So as you know, Jesus had a lot of people that were very close to him, women and men that were his closest followers, and they went through some pretty shocking things. I would say they went from ardent followers to having some rust spots show up on their faith pretty quick, because there they were in the Garden of Gethsemane with him uh, at, a, at a point in the evening where they had been there before, but the Roman soldiers came along with a bunch of religious leaders who Jesus was opposed by, and all of these believers that were with Jesus saw this pack of people coming, this angry mob, and they themselves had fear in their hearts. And they saw Jesus arrested. And they saw him willingly go with these people. And they knew that it was the beginning of something ugly. And oh, they probably couldn't imagine how frightful and awful it really was going to be. It says in the scriptures that the disciples forsook Jesus at that point. They forsook him and fled. Their faith was in crisis mode already, and things went from bad to worse. They saw Jesus carted off to, to uh, the high priest's house. They knew that there was some kind of illegal prosecution going on there. Trials were not supposed to be held at night, but there was a kangaroo court going on there. Jesus was tried. Uh, false accusations were being thrown against him. They couldn't hear everything that was going on. But they saw that Jesus was, was not only arrested, but he was he was a gone through a night trial, again, which was illegal. And then he, he emerged uh, finally from the Roman guard later uh, with a crown of thorns upon his head. He'd been bruised. He'd been beaten. They saw him disfigured already. They knew horrible things were happening. They knew that the sentence of death was upon him. What do you think was happening to their fragile faith? They knew what was going on when they saw him holding the cross member to a cross. They knew that he had been sentenced to death. And they watched in abject horror as he was moving, moving towards Golgotha. And as a man named Siren, Simon from Cyrene, northern Africa, was asked to help him carry that cross member because it was so heavy and because Jesus was already so physically weak. You know, when he died, when they saw him put to death and take his last breaths on the cross, their dreams died with him. I think their faith was so full of rust at that point that they must have been just beyond despair. D beyond despair. Fear and confusion reigned. That day we call Good Friday was a horrible day for them. And then Saturday came and there was no word from God. There was no message written in the heavens, all will be well. They were fear-stricken. They were doubting. They were wondering, did what we believe, was it a lie? 
What was this all about? You know, there's a, there's a large category of people that live in our times, a lot of them here in America, that are known as the, as the nuns. No, not nuns in a religious sense, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns that have no religious belief. They are growing exponentially. The Urban Dictionary defines the nuns in this way. They are people who are religiously unaffiliated. They describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular. If you ask them if they have a religion, their reply would be, I have none. And you can meet nuns anywhere these days. They number, in numbers here in the States, there are as many as evangelicals and as Catholics that were pretty much on equal footing in terms of numbers. If there was ever a group in history before this time period that we live in, if there was ever a group in history that had a, a reason to perhaps become a part of such a group, I think it was the early disciples. Because they saw their dreams in a Messiah, a person they believed to be a Messiah, Jesus, die. Whoever believed in a crucified Messiah? It doesn't make sense. If anybody had reason to give up on faith, I think it was those guys, those first followers of Jesus. You remember what Thomas, the disciple, said later when he heard that Jesus was raised from the dead? He said, I won't even believe that. He said, unless I can, can see the wounds in his hands, I saw him die. He says, unless I can see the wounds and touch them and feel the wound in his side where, they, where the Roman guard put his spear in there, unless I can feel that, I'm not going to believe it. They were that devastated. It's easy to forget that. You know, here at First Baptist here in Minot, we, we're on a mission to help nuns. Nuns can become sons and daughters of a heavenly father who loves them and created them to become part of God's forever family. Those first disciples had their battles with belief, their doubts, their disappointments with faith, their discouragements. Maybe some of you here today are wrestling with reasons to believe, or maybe you know a nun, somebody that has maybe drifted. Maybe they once were a son or a daughter, but they've turned away from God, from faith in him. Maybe they've raised their own questions like some of the first disciples did and said, I don't know if I can believe in, in Jesus. I don't know if I understand the, the questions that I have. I don't think I've got answers to the questions I have of faith. Well, you're not, if that's your case today, you're not the first person to have questions and you're not the last. That event for the first disciples, the crucifixion of their Lord, seemed to spell the end of their faith. And frankly, friends, we can understand that. It did not humanly make much sense. Scripture uh, records their sense of loss. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, we will be getting to Matthew 27, but in Luke 24, we read a post-resurrection account, meaning Jesus was already resurrected, post, uh, when he encountered two men on a road to a little town called Emmaus. And I won't read that whole context for you. But Jesus himself, after he resurrected from death, appeared to two men who were talking about him. And he was incognito. He was not recognized by them. He shows up shortly after his resurrection and listens in to a conversation of two men who are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, just a few miles distance. And he listens to them and he says, what are you guys talking about? And they turn to him, and I'm paraphrasing the scripture. You can read it for yourself to, to check my accuracy. But he he says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, where are you from? 
have you not been around here? Have you not heard of the wild and crazy events that have happened in Jerusalem in these days? There was a prophet by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who was mighty in, in word and deed. We had thoughts that he was the Messiah, but he wound up being crucified. We're so disappointed. We thought he was the one. The scripture on the screen brings us into the moment I want us to focus on. They said to him, we had hoped, hoped, past tense. <laughs> we gave up hope. Our faith in him is now rusted over. <laughs> we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. They had hopes in a political Messiah. Israel at this time was under the control of the Roman Empire, which was the superpower of the, of the era. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And Jesus begins to unpack a few things for them. In this very moment, he reveals this to them. How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus is the forever teacher. He's a rabbi, which means teacher. And he begins to teach them from the Old Testament and to say, you misunderstood the scriptures. You misunderstood the Messiah's mission, his his mission was not a political mission to set Israel free from the Roman oppressors and to set up a political kingdom. His first mission was to set his people free from sin. That's the greater oppression that they and all people have. And that was his first mission. He begins to explain this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He goes on to their household. He breaks bread with them. He, he explains more of who, what the Messiah's mission was uh, uh, on earth, and then he is taken from them. And they understand this, this was him, Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected Jesus. And for the scriptures say for a period of about 40 days, Jesus continued to appear to his disciples, to his followers. And so they went... Those disciples went from a crisis of faith, faith rusted over, faith that was full of doubt, that was in a catastrophic place, to a new point of understanding he is the Messiah. His mission was different than they had fully understood it. And they could now face the rest of their human life on this earth with a new mindset. History would continue. Life would still have its trials and its difficulties. And the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, which they had witnessed, did bring about the kingdom of God, but it wasn't the culmination of the kingdom of God. That was yet coming when Jesus would return the second time. And so now they realized they and we, friends, are living in the time between the times, the time between the first coming of Jesus and the time of his return. We and they are living in the time between the times. Jesus, when he, when he came the first time, he said, he said, the kingdom of God is among you. Behold, the kingdom of, of heaven is here. But it isn't fully here yet, is it? No, it's still on the way. He said, I'm coming again. We're living now in the time between the times. So their whole mindset began to shift to, okay, he's with us. He's promised to abide with us. His spirit is with us. And we have a mission to complete. And we believe on him and we follow him. And he's with us always even to the end of the age. And we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the day will come when it will all be manifested as it is in heaven, when his will will be completely done. So they began to tell people, I know this sounds a little strange. I know it sounds ridiculous. But this Jesus that was crucified, he was resurrected. He is the Messiah. I know it's kind of hard to believe. But we walked with him. We talked with him. We saw him die. 
By the way, the Roman soldiers, by the time that they crucified Jesus, they stood there until the criminals, uh, i.e. criminals or, or quotation criminals, until they died. Jesus was not a criminal, died a criminal's death. Before Jesus' time, when the Romans crucified people, they'd often leave them there on a cross and they'd just go home and do their own thing. And then the family members of the people who were sentenced to die or friends would come and get their loved ones down from the cross if they hadn't died already, and they, they would sometimes survive. And the Romans caught on to that. Well, that was capital punishment. They weren't supposed to be saved from death. And, and so by the time of Jesus' arrest and, and death sentence, the, the Roman uh, guards, they knew what to do. They stood guard and they waited for whoever was crucified to be truly expired. And you see that recorded in history and in this scripture. The conviction about him in terms of who he is. And if you don't, you don't believe in who he is, you won't have eternal life. It's just that important. If we don't have the right conviction about Jesus Christ, we won't have eternal life. Jesus said that to religious people. Luke chapter 13, verse 3, verse 5, he looked straight in the face of religious people. He said, if you don't turn to me in faith, if you don't repent of your sin and turn to me, he said, you're not going to go to heaven. He told them that. He said, you're going to perish. And so I, I, I talked turkey with you today. Coming to church doesn't make us Christians. Doing religious things doesn't make us saved. These are stepping stones towards knowing who Jesus is. They can serve a great purpose. But do we know Jesus as our Savior, as our forgiver? Have we received him? You know, the Apostle Paul had a great conviction about Jesus Christ. He says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. Jesus, the Son of God, crucified for my sins. That's what he was saying there. So before I go much further in the message, I just want to give us this snapshot of the minimum of Christian belief. It's this. Jesus Christ died in our place on that cross, and when we put our faith in what he did, we're saved from our sin. And I want to unpack that with you here this morning. I want to unpack that a little bit. Because you and I know that Jesus didn't, he died a criminal's death, but not because he was a criminal. He died a substitutionary death. Because we're criminals by nature. Now you say, well, gee, that's pretty harsh. I'm nothing like a Hitler. I'm nothing like a Mussolini. I'll give you that. I'm not either. But have you ever broken any of the Ten Commandments? You ever lied? You ever lusted? You ever, ever murdered in your heart? You ever, ever done anything wrong in thought, word, or deed? Have you ever kept any of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, or deed? You know, the, the problem with, with, the, with a lot of us as human beings is we think God grades on the curve. We think that we'll get into heaven someday if we've lived a life that's pretty moral, whereas if, you know, it'll be all balanced on some, some magical scale. If we've done more good than bad, God will let us into heaven. Where do we get that idea? I think it's a human idea. It, it just sounds good to us. It just seems to make sense to us. It seems to be fair to us. But the thing is, God isn't 90% holy or 95% holy or just or perfect. He's 100% holy, 100% perfect and loving, yes. But you don't get into heaven unless you're perfect, just like him. Oil and water don't mix, and unholiness or imperfection and holiness do not mix. So God doesn't weigh us on a scale and say, well, you did, you did pretty good down there. You did okay, so I'm going to let you into heaven. He says, no, you got to be perfect. And none of us are close. Not a one of us. It's tempting to look down the ladder, if you will, and say there's always somebody below you that, that's living a worse life, right? We should look up the ladder and say perfection's the standard. 
not who's below me, but who's above me. And Jesus is, is the standard, and God is the standard of perfection. And, and only Jesus is perfect. And God says, I give you his, his righteousness. I give you my son's righteousness. I need that righteousness. When I stand before God someday, and he says, Kent, why should I let you into my heaven? You know, you know what? You know what I'm going to say to him? There's no reason I should come into heaven except for your son and what he did for me. I've got no claim on heaven except for what Jesus did. I just appeal to you today to have Jesus close to your life, to, to know he's your, in, in your heart, he's your forgiver, he's your personal savior and your friend. Bible scholar Don Carson helps us see some important truths in this Matthew passage, and I want to unpack those in the last uh, few moments here that I share with you today. The man who is mocked as king in this passage is the king. Now, you know that. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, knows that. But there's an incredible irony that the people who mocked Jesus as their king, they didn't believe it. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31. I won't read all of that, but I reference it to you. If you look down in, in about the middle of it, it says that the soldiers, they did something very uh, untoward, very un, un, uh, unkind. They put a staff in Jesus' right hand. They were mocking him because they heard that he was presented for death by pretending by being an imposter to being the king of the Jews. So they said, oh, you're a king, huh? And, of course, they, they knew no king but Caesar over in Rome. So they knelt in front of him, and they mocked him, and they said, hail, king of the Jews. It's hard to read this stuff. They spit on him. They took the staff, and they struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, and they put, on, they put his own clothes on him. They got tired of their game after a while. Eventually, they led him away to crucify him. If you jump down to verse 37, it tells you about the sign that they made. Every man that the Romans condemned to death, there was a sign that they made that they put above him on the cross, mentioning his name and his capital crime. And here it was this. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So in other words, they're saying he's an imposter. This is his name, and this is what he claimed to be. And we're putting him to death for this. Here's the irony of it. It is his name. By the way, Jesus, bound up in that name, was his mission. It means Jehovah saves. <laughs> Jesus means saves. But the, 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 the so-called crime, he's the king of the Jews. They're saying he claims to be somebody he's not. Here's the irony. He really is the king of the Jews. Matthew, the writer of the gospel, knows it. Jesus knows it. God knows it. You, the reader, me, the reader of the Matthew's gospel, we know it. The soldiers spoke and wrote that. They, they spoke better than they knew. He is the king of the Jews. He's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of those soldiers. He's not only the king of those soldiers, he's the king over Pilate. He's, he's not only the king over him, he's the, he's the ruler over everybody. So why does he allow himself to be subjected to this? You know why? Because he's... Jesus said to Pilate earlier when he was being interviewed, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king unlike any earthly king. Now, earthly kings today are not like the kings of, of ancient times. Kings today, the few that we have in the world, are they're, they're kind of figureheads, right? But the kings of, of, of ancient culture, they were kings in a get, get you under the thumb kind of way. People served them, and people would face penalty of death when they didn't obey them, and, and they were really about being served. Jesus is a king of a different kind. Jesus is a king who serves. Jesus told his disciples, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. 
Jesus is a king who came to his own people with the mission to serve them. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if bringing the lost back home to God meant giving his life, the king said, I'll do that. And so our king, this king from another world, he laid his life down for us. That's our kind of king. That's the king we have in Jesus. He takes the insults. He takes the spit. He takes the the crown of thorns. He takes the abuse. He takes all of that. The, The one who's mocked as king, he really is the king. And he takes it all for you and for me because of his love, because of his compassion. That's our Jesus. That's the one. That's why we worship him. That's why we love him. Who wouldn't love a king that will do that? Who wouldn't, who wouldn't serve him? A king that would, would give you his life because he loves you that much. That's a king. That's a king of a different kingdom. That's, that's our king. And the man who is utterly powerless, at least seemingly, as Jesus is on the cross, he seems so so beaten, so defeated, we know he's ultimately powerful, isn't he? You better believe he is. But he wouldn't accomplish his mission if he, if he manifested his power and came down from the cross. And if we look at that biblical text, we see that he was mocked on the cross. They were, they were saying all kinds of derogatory things to him as he's, as he's put there on the cross. I refer you to that text, Matthew 27. And, and just jump over to verse 40. Uh, of, of that, that part of it. Verse 40, it says, they said to Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. That's one of the mocking statements. And they're repeating something that Jesus had said earlier. If you would refer to, I'll give you a reference point, John chapter 2, verses 19, 20, and 21, Jesus told the, the religious rulers in that context, religious leaders, He said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they misunderstood him. They were looking at the grand edifice of of Herod the Great's temple around them, which took 40-some years to build. He was not referring to that physical temple. He was referring to his body. And they laughed at him. They said, well, that's scandalous. They said, it took 40-plus years to build this, and you're going to rebuild it in three days if if we destroyed it? You're nuts. You're crazy. And now they're throwing it back at him. Do you see the mockery? They're saying, you, you said that you, you're not powerful. You're going to come down from that now and rebuild the temple? And you know what's, what's so ironic? They're destroying his temple, the body, and guess what he's going to do? He's going he's to rise. He's going to rise on the third day. He's going to do just what he said. And if you read the John text I mentioned to you, it says the disciples remembered that text, that, that statement of Jesus that he was referring to his body. They remembered it after he resurrected. He was fulfilling everything that he said. By the way, side note, the temple of Jesus' day was the meeting point where people went to go meet with God because that's where sacrifices were made to bring people into the right unity or reunion or reconciliation in their relationship with God. The sacrifice of animals was made to forgive sin. Jesus is replacing it by becoming the meeting place between God and people by being the meeting point. He's like a living temple, right? And he says, destroy this temple. Destroy this now, and I'll raise it up again. And it'll be the meeting place for people everywhere and at all times. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father now but through me, through my blood, through my sacrifice. That's his offer to all humanity 
Have you received that offer today is my question. But the man who, is, who seems utterly powerless, he's powerful. He's, he's gonna be, he's gonna, he says, I have authority to lay my life down and to raise it up. But he's laying it down willingly. Well, I'm going to hit my last two here. The man who can't say, seem to save himself, he saves others. And that's what they said. They throw that at him. And I, I would unpack this a little bit more than I have time for today. But, but you're following my main points here. And if you look at the verses, you can see where we're going with this. Verses 41 and 42 uh, just takes it a little bit further. They say to him, you saved others. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Mock, mock, you know, hint, hint. That's, they're mocking him. He is the king. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Here's the thing. He physically could have come down from that cross. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have done that. And yet, he chose not to do that because he was under his father's imperative, a moral imperative. Finish the mission, son. This is what you've come to do. So while he could have done what they said he couldn't do, he could have done it. In one hand, they're right. He couldn't do it, but not for the reason that they thought. He couldn't do it because he would have been disobeying his father's will. He wouldn't have finished his mission. He couldn't have shown the father's love and forgiveness to us if he hadn't finished the substitutionary death that he died for us on that cross. And what did he say as he gave up his life for us? He says, it is finished. He let it go. He let his life go. He, he didn't hold on to it when he could have. He obeyed his father's will and let his life expire. So in a way, they spoke of him, his mockers, his accusers spoke accurately of him when they said he can't save himself. They're, they're right. He couldn't. He could, but he couldn't. He had the ability to, so they were wrong on that count, but he, he didn't do it because if he did, he couldn't have saved us. And then the man who cries out in despair, he ultimately trusts God. He's not doubting God. Some people look at this uh, end of this passage, and they look at a verse, and they say, hmm, Jesus cries out in, the, in a, it's at verse 46, Eli, Eli, this is a, in Aramaic, Laba Sabachthani, translated into English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some commentators have looked too narrowly at that and said, oh, that appears that Jesus is having a pity party. It appears he is caving in. He's finally saying, wow, did I make a mistake? God, you've turned away from me. I don't think I like being here. I don't think this is working out. You've, now you've forsaken me. I can take it down here, but I can't take your turning away from me. And I would portend, I would tell you, the, the text does not suggest at all that Jesus is, is facing that desperate moment with any such sentiment that, that he is having a pity party. He is just in a honest-to-goodness, unbelievable moment of anguish as he experiences on our behalf the weight of of humanity's sin. His death is a necessary substitution for our death, and he understands that. He's accepting that. He cries out in trust, not in doubt. My God, my God, I'm bearing this. And God looks away from, from the sin of, of all the world as Jesus bears that. And I leave that next line, that fill in blank, with the prayer that you'll put your name in there. Jesus cries that cry from the cross so that for all eternity, you won't have to. Put your name in there. Jesus cries out that, prayer, that, that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you will never have to say that to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus has already borne that for you. I met a, I met a young girl this past week who, who trusted the Lord about a year ago. And now she's coming into baptism pretty soon. She's readying herself for her next step in her Christian life. Following Jesus is an adventure. She's finding out that Jesus died to bring us more, more to this life than just living and dying, making it through another day. More than these eyes alone can see, there's more to this life than life alone can be. Have you put your trust in him? My friend, have you put your trust in him? Jesus said this, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, before we roll our eyes and say, what does that mean? Let me tell you what I don't think it means. I don't believe that it, it supports cannibalism. Jesus never offered his arm for somebody to chomp a bite out of that. He never offered his blood for people to drink. I believe it's, it's a metaphor. Jesus is using illustrative language to make a, a simple, big point. He's telling us, unless you are deeply associated with him, with who he is, you have no part in him. It's not enough to say, oh, he exists. Jesus, he's a great guy. I'm a fan. He's saying, you have no part in me unless you're intimately associated with me. Have you come to him in faith, childlike faith, and said, I need you. I believe on you, and I, I trust you to be my forgiver. I bring you my sin. I got nothing else, but I bring you that, knowing that your, your cross can forgive it. That it's under the blood. You can, you can, your blood is sufficient to forgive me of all my sins. Have you made that step in your life as a, as a young person, as an adult? You know, I took a long time to come to that point in my life. I'm a late bloomer. So I get it. If you've got questions about that, concerns or doubts even, I'd love to talk with you about how to make that step if you've never done it. There's no dumb question. There's no reason we can't visit about it. But I ask you today, to consider the claims of Jesus, the offer of life that he makes to you today. And I'd encourage you to stand with me today as we just read this last verse together as a benediction today. Would you stand with me and read, let's read this together. It's the promise of life forever with Jesus because of the resurrection and because of trust in him. Let's read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Father, thank you for this time together on Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for the hope of heaven and for life for every one of us today in the name of Jesus and through the life of Jesus through the, the hope that he gives to us. Might everyone here today truly know the hope of Jesus and, and not think that that's just for someone else, but it's for everyone here and for everyone outside of this room and beyond. Might we 
Might we bring that hope to people, Lord, through our living, through the days before us. Thank you so much for giving us this time together that we've shared. And we pray this in his name who died for us and lives again that we might live in him. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Easter.